You're listening to 3CR Radio. And Don't be scared. I've done this before. Show me your teeth. Show me your teeth. Show me your teeth. Don't want no money. That shit's ugly. Just want your sex. Want your sex. <laughs> Take a bite of my bad girl meat. Take a bite of me. Show me your teeth. Let me see your mean. Got no direction. No direction. I need direction. Just got my vamp. Take a bite of my bad girl meat. Take a bite of me, boy. Show me your teeth. The truth is sexy. Tell me something that'll save me I need a man on it's my alright Tell me something that'll change me I'm gonna love you with my hands tied Show me your teeth Tell me when Show me your teeth Open your mouth, boy Show me your teeth Show me what you got Show me your teeth Teeth, teeth, teeth Got no salvation No salvation Got no salvation Got no religion No religion My religion is you Take a bite of my bad girl bad Take a bite of my boy Show me your teeth I'm a touch Got my addictions Now I love to fix them No one's perfect Take a bite of my bad girl But I'm not a Show me your teeth I just need a little guidance Tell me something that'll save me I need a man, I'll mix my all right Tell me something that'll change me I'm gonna love you with my hands tied Show me your teeth Just tell me when Show me your teeth Open your mouth, boy Show me your teeth Show me what you got Show me your teeth Teeth, teeth, teeth Show me your teeth My religion is you face on 3CR with James. On today's show, our guests are two young queer activists, 
living with HIV support worker Ruan Ace and queer arts producer Joshua Francis. 3CR. Well, Ruan Ace is a young gay man from Sydney working in the HIV sector, and I spoke with him this week. So I'm the programs coordinator at Bobby Goldsmith Foundation. We're um, Australia's oldest community-based HIV organisation. Um, and my role basically is to create programs that uh, create opportunities for our clients, who are all people living with HIV, to socially connect, as well as give them creative outlets and, um, and a sense of self-advocacy. So some of the programs would be a healthy um, cooking program, for instance. So just um, assist them to be socially connected and live healthier, happier lives. To what extent does HIV and living with HIV create social isolation? Well, I think it's important to note that it's very different for the different generations of people living with HIV. Um, a lot of our clients, uh, for instance, have been living with HIV for almost 30 years. Um, and as you can imagine, the reality of, of living with HIV back in the 80s is a lot different to becoming HIV positive today. Um, so most of our clients are high needs clients with um, that they faced, um, you know, continuous social isolation, um, lack of employment because of the stigma and the discrimination. And a lot of the time, the, 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 um, the treatments back in the 80s were so harsh that they couldn't work. So they, they, there's a lot of a whole heap, a whole suite of issues that um, that I guess affect them that wouldn't affect a newly diagnosed person, person, for instance. So it sounds like you're working with people who've been living with HIV for some time. Yes, at, at the moment, that is sort of the demographic of the people who um, who attend my programs. But BGF, as a as an organisation, we look after anyone who's living with HIV um, that, that 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 needs us. What are some of the most common issues that the people you work with raise? Look, it it, it really depends on the client. It, it can be very client specific, but there's a definite trend um, amongst the the older client cohort: uh, isolation, loneliness. Um, you know, having lived with that stigma and discrimination their whole lives, not um, financial, no financial security. They, they they were unable to work back in the 80s because the virus was quite aggressive and, and we didn't have um, effective treatment. So they have, you know, they've had financial issues and, and struggles up until now. They're almost sort of the, the lost generation um, or the forgotten generation, for lack of a better word. Um, they were told they were HIV positive. They, they had five years to live. And then when the antiretrovirals came through, all of a sudden, oh no, now you're going to live till, till you're 80. Um, but you know, they, 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 they have the side effects of the treatments back in those days and the stigma and the discrimination in the community and the isolation to contend with. So how rife is stigma in the community still towards people who are HIV positive? Look, I think that would also depend on the community that you belong to. Um, in, the, in, the, in the men who have sex with men or the gay community, I see a, a vast reduction of the stigma uh, it's not. It's definitely not gone, but it's a lot less than it was because we have PEP and PrEP and undetectable viral load, which means a person with living with HIV is, is uninfectious. Um, and the gay community, because we've been confronted with this virus for so long, it's become part of our rhetoric, a part of our lives. Uh, we've responded to it quite well. We're educated about it. We know how viral loads work. We know how to protect ourselves uh, and, and others. Um, but I think if you're part of the, the heterosexual community or a culturally linguistically diverse community or migrant communities, um, the education levels aren't as high. So the stigma is, 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 is quite crippling in those communities. To what extent is stigma uh, towards HIV positive people prevalent amongst younger people who aren't HIV positive? Uh, I guess it varies too according to the community within the community that they're from. Very much so. 
um, like I said, you know, we have fantastic organizations like ACON and the likes out there who are constantly educating the LGBTIQ community. But I think when you look at HIV now, we, we've dropped the HIV transmission rate by 74% among men who have sex with men in New South Wales, which is a fantastic drop in, in figures. Um, but it's going to become a, a heterosexually acquired infection and, and people who are bisexual and, 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 and those kind of communities, migrant communities and people who aren't um, health literate or who don't know what resources they have available to them, it's actually starting to affect those those communities, especially um, international students, for instance. Some of them don't know that they can get tested here for free and they have access to all these resources and support. So the face of HIV and the stigma is, is changing as, as the virus and the communities change that it affects. I guess access to treatments is a big issue for people born overseas who are, you know, overseas students who are HIV positive and not being able to access them via the Medicare system. That must be a huge barrier to leading a healthy life and, and getting connected to the community. It definitely is a huge barrier. I know that some of the advocacy organisations help international students and people who aren't Australian born to access antiretrovirals, but we also help them access PrEP. If there's international students, you know, once again, we need they need to know that the resource is there for them to access it. So it's about creating education in those communities that, look, we do have the resources here to protect you. Um, something that's happening that, that I found before I was working at BGF, I was working at Akon as a sexually adventurous men outreach worker. And I found that there is, is, is there are quite a lot of um, international students who come here. And because of the rampant racism in our community, sexual racism especially, um, they, they end up putting themselves at risk. Um, and they don't know about PrEP and PEP and all those resources that are at hand. Um, so they actually, they, they go hand in hand. Tell us more about the sexual racism in the community. Yeah, look, I think sexual racism is is um, is present in, in all communities. Um, I can only speak for, I guess, the gay community, which I'm a part of, but I, I see it every day. I have friends who are non-Australian born who, when they log on to Grindr, for instance, they face racism every day. Um, and I And I can't imagine what it must be like to live in a country where you're always second best or second class or just not good enough. Um, and it really is something that we need to change within ourselves. We, we, we need to notice that we're doing it and we need to address it. That sexual racism must have an enormous impact on people's mental health. Of course, of course. I think you spend your whole life searching for you know, love. You know, we strive for validation. Um, and if you can never attain that validation or never be good enough, it must impact you on so many different levels. If you look at it from a, a gay man's perspective, we grow up in a straight world. So we're never good enough and we create a false persona of ourselves that gathers or, or, or garners validation from our straight peers. Um, and, and that is why I think a lot of gay men have so many mental health and AOD issues growing up because we've never had true validation and we've never lived our authentic selves. And if you place that model onto um, someone who's non-Australian born, you can, you can imagine that that would also have long-term effects in the same way it does for gay men. You mentioned your work at ACON before doing uh, outreach with sexually adventurous men. Tell us about that work. It sounds fascinating. Yeah, look, I, I was I was a peer in that space. It was I, I absolutely loved the work, and and I after my HIV diagnosis, I I, I I was using a lot of drugs. I stopped loving myself, and I went through a, a bit of a dip in my mental health. So it was really fortunate for me to get an opportunity to work in that space, to work with other gay men or MSM, who uh, men who have sex with men, who um, who are engaging in sexualized drug use. So we know that sexualized drug use is on the up in Australia and in, indeed worldwide, um, where we combine sex and drugs. 
Um, so there was, there's really, there really was a need for someone to step up and be a peer. So there's no judgment. I've been there, mate. I'm not going to judge you. Let's talk about your use. Let's talk about your goals. How can we help you reach those goals? Whether it's abstinence, whether it's use, whether it's use reduction or harm reduction. So it was a really magical, magical position and I, and I, and I really enjoyed it. Yeah. That must have given you a great empathy with your clients, but it must have been a hard road to get to that point. Can you tell us a bit more about your personal journey living with HIV? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I guess I was uninformed and, and, and I took risks, many risks. In, in, in fact, it probably should have happened earlier on if you, if you think about my behavior. But once again, became HIV positive, didn't know how to handle it. And as most people who have a positive diagnosis, we go through a bit of a mental health dip. We um, your life change in an instant and um, I started my, my drug use increased um, I also disclosed my my status at work within a month I was on a on a, a performance plan they were trying to get rid of me so I was fighting that and this is once again the stigma that you face when you're living with HIV uh, soon after lost my house <laughs> so it was just this uh, unfortunate series of events from HIV diagnosis to unemployment to actual homelessness and I just remember sleeping in, in, a, in an abandoned house in Melbourne with my other dog, a staffy, and the two of us curled up into a sleeping bag and just slowly trying to get coffee gigs and making coffees at restaurants and trying to get money again so I can get a bond together and slowly over time got safe housing again, started working in the sector and, and, and put my life back together. It, it wasn't easy and I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for amazing community support, uh, peer support. Uh, and friends and family who stood by me and, and supported me to get to get to that point. What was that circuit breakup where you were able to transcend homelessness and the poverty and all the social isolation connected to that? You know, that, that was probably the hardest thing. Um, and I don't know if I should say this on live radio, but um, or on radio. But um, look, the hardest thing is if you don't have stable housing, having a stable job is impossible. Without a stable job, renting a house is impossible. So it's this catch-22 where you're stuck between these two rocks and you're just trying to make the best of it. In the end, uh, I actually had a friend, a, a friend lie to my real estate agent and told them that I had a job somewhere, which I didn't, just so that I could actually get approved for a house. And then when I finally got approved for the house, I was using my dole payments to pay rent on that house. And while I was making coffees wherever I can, just to up my income a little bit and, and get back on track. So it's actually a really hard place to come out of. And that homelessness must uh, be a very common story among uh, people who do have HIV, especially if they've battled addiction. Yeah, uh, we like to call it substance dependence or substance use. Addiction, uh, uh, sorry to <laughs> school you there. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, look, I, I think I can't speak for everyone. Some people become HIV positive and it's just another thing that happens and and they can kick on with their lives as, you know, as, and, and as much normal in brackets as possible. But, you know, I think for some people that isn't the reality. And for me, it, sh it certainly wasn't. I, I actually had, had to, it, I had to go down after, after everything that's happened to me. So, but I do believe the harder you hit, hit the ground, the higher you bounce. Is that, is that the saying? <laughs> so how did you end up in Sydney? Look, I was constantly applying for work in the HIV sector. Since I became HIV positive, I became a bit of an activist. So I started a group in Melbourne called the Hivsters. So instead of Hipsters with a V, HIV Hipsters. Um, and I slowly started working uh, with community and doing a lot of volunteer work. I was, di I was um, facilitating newly diagnosed workshops and I was slowly building up my HIV sector 
repertoire or experience base. And I kept applying for work, but I just couldn't find any positions in Melbourne. And when the job in Sydney came up, I applied. Um, and it was as if the dominoes just fell the right way. I think within a week, I had a, an interview. A week later, I got the job. A week later, I had moved to Sydney. <laughs> it all happened very fast. You've also entered Mr Gay Pride Australia 2020. That must be an extension of your activism, having an openly HIV positive person contesting the pageant. Well, look, I, I certainly hope it is. Um, I've become so community-minded. It, it, it's interesting that it takes something like HIV to get rid of all that plastic, unimportant, um, fake authenticity that we live. And it really took something like HIV to shake me awake. And since then, I've been absolutely passionate about serving my community and doing what I can to help my community, whether that's the gay community or the LGBT community, the HIV community, the drug use community. Um, absolutely passionate about helping those marginalized communities. And it is also the main reason I applied to be a finalist for the Mr. Gay Pride Australia contest is so that I can use that platform to, I guess, add value and, and, and help someone along the way. Um, in saying that, my, 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 my aim for the Mr. Gay Pride or the, the sort of the theme that I entered under was ending lateral violence, which I think you'd agree covers HIV and marginalized communities, but it's the lateral violence in our community, in the LGBT community, that I wanted to address through this campaign. Tell us how the lateral violence manifests. You mentioned sexual racism. That's a part of it. Definitely a part of it, yeah. Um, I think lateral violence, it, it's a very hard subject to, to dissect, and it's going to be an even harder issue to solve but it's the intersectionality in our communities. I think at some level we need to realize that we're not one community. The LGBTIQA plus community, we're not one community. We're many communities under one umbrella. And we need to start, I guess, um, um, really being, seeing the beauty in the other communities and appreciating for what they bring because we all bring something unique to the table that makes our community stronger and it's about noticing and appreciating those differences so that we can move forward allowing um trans men into cis spaces um you know and and, and i guess realizing that one community or one part of the community doesn't have to lose something for the other part of the community to gain something. There does seem to be a lot of hostility uh, towards trans men sexually from the gay community and vice versa. How do we tackle that huge issue? It, it blows my mind, to be honest. I, I have many trans friends and I just, I can't comprehend it. It, it, is, it, is, it is absolutely something that I think is born in toxic masculinity. And, and I can only speak for gay men, but I think a lot of gay men has toxic masculinity. What we're doing is we're projecting our own insecurities onto other parts of the community and, and making their lives hell. Trans men are men. They need to be allowed in our spaces. It's just, it's just how it is. And I think once we start looking into ourselves and getting rid of all this internalized shame and, 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 and toxic masculinity, we will be able to be more accepting of other parts of our community. Ruan, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so much for chatting with me on 3CR. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Feel
doing the Cure's love song. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. We'd like to pay our respects to Indigenous Elders past, present and emerging. 3CR broadcast from the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty was never ceded in this country. 3CR Or Joshua Francis is a young queer arts producer based in Melbourne and we chatted earlier this week. So for me, I actually grew up in Rockingham, which is a small, well, it's kind of small, but not as small as you think. It's called Rockingham in Western Australia. So I grew up there, um, very isolated, kind of baby queer, um, until I relocated to Melbourne and studied professional writing and editing at RMIT University. And that was a real sort of eye-opener for me about, okay, like I can have a career in the arts. Um, I was interested in getting into the publishing industry because writing and reading were sort of things that I really enjoyed doing. And it wasn't until uh, halfway through the course I realised publishing is a very difficult industry to get into. It's very conservative. Um, it's full of older white men. And I just thought maybe this isn't what I want to do. Um, so I actually started doing internships with arts organisations and found myself working in marketing. So I would be a marketing officer in a theatre company, in a gallery, in an arts organisation. And it was through doing that marketing work that I, yeah, gained access to working in arts management and working into the arts sector. And then over a couple of years sort of was again having that questioning and that curiosity of what is it that I want to do with my career what are things that I can change? Um, and because I was in these sorts of marketing jobs where I didn't really have a lot of power and autonomy, I thought, okay, well, I need to, again, sort of reinvent myself or change what it is I want to do. And started hearing this word called producer um, and started getting really interested in producing what a producer is, what a producer does. Um, and essentially producers are project managers. They create opportunities for artists, they manage budgets and venues, they manage creative developments and rehearsals, they bring ideas, they support artists, um, and that's what I do. So it's been this long journey of studying writing, wanting to get into publishing, and then through marketing, finding my way uh, into working, yeah, as a freelance independent producer. Tell us about your commitment to intersectionality and how that permeates throughout your work, because I know that's a strong motivation for you as an artist and as a producer. Yeah, definitely. So for me, when I started working inside these arts, organisa arts organisations, um, I was usually the only young person, the only queer person, the only person of colour. So it was that three-layered kind of isolation I felt when I was working inside these organizations, except a lot of the dialogue was around diversity. How do we become 
more diverse? How do we support more diverse artists? But it was sort of this unanswered question. It would always hang around. I would tentatively offer ideas or new artists who were culturally diverse or who were queer, um, who wanted the opportunity. But the it was in a way feeling like the organization didn't wouldn't know how to support them. It was it wasn't the artist was it was kind of a reverse situation where the artist was ready for the opportunity, but the organization wasn't ready to give the opportunity to that artist of that background. Um, and there's so much conversations, uh, so many conversations around cultural safety. Um, and we're st- again, we're still having these conversations and I think we're in a better place uh, now than a few years ago. Um, so for me, yeah, being this person of intersectional identity, someone who is queer, person of colour, mixed-race experience. Um, yeah, and I definitely acknowledge my own privilege as well, um, being more middle-class and coming from a more working-class background. Um, so for me, when I'm working with artists or thinking about what projects to take on, I'm naturally drawn to working with people of intersectional identity or working with people who, yeah, Black, First Nations, uh, Indigenous, uh, people of colour, Asian diaspora, so it's just this kind of, yeah, just it's a it's a natural desire for me. I believe that people who have complex identities or people who have diverse identities just make the best art. Um, so for me, it was a, a real kind of social justice drive to begin with. Now it just feels natural. Um, yeah, I hope that answers that question. <laughs> It certainly does, and it sounds like combating racism is a strong theme throughout your work. Yeah, definitely. And there are many other producers and artists who also are working in this space. Um, And a collaborator and friend, I've more recently been working with Andy Butler, who is an incredible curator now working at West Space. Um, He's written so much about the complexity of diaspora, multicultural identity. And something he um, said to me, which still sticks, is it's, it's great to create space and to combat these sorts of issues. But at the same time, we should just, like diaspora artists, POC artists, should be able to make whatever they want. They don't have to wait to make work about racism if they don't want to. So it's again, it's this complexity of like, of course, there are artists of multicultural background who want to talk about race and want to talk about racism, who want to talk about social justice and decolonization, but there should be just as much opportunity for those artists to make whatever work they want to make. And that's slowly where I'm getting more interested. Like that's more the artistic space space I want to occupy. I'm interested in kind of work that's about anything. It doesn't have to come from a place of trauma. Uh, yeah. Define diaspora for our listeners. Diaspora, oh, that's a tricky one to define. I think it's traditionally used in a very maybe academic uh, context of defining uh, a spread of people of a particular identity. So, for instance, when I talk about Asian diaspora, I'm talking about uh, East Asian, Southeast Asian people who are across the globe. So we have the Japanese community in Australia as well as the Chinese community who are diaspora. Um, but for me, my own personal relationship with the word uh, is that I was born and raised in Australia. I'm the first, first generation Australian in my family. So on my mum's side, 
I have Burmese family and Mauritian ancestors, and on my dad's side, British. Um, but I'm the first person born in Australia in my family. So I am kind of that pinnacle sort of diaspora child where I have, I was, I've never been to Burma. I've never been to my mum's home country, but I still have this longing and desire and interest in my culture, but I don't speak Burmese. I haven't been there. Um, and there's some really interesting conversations now happening sort of in multicultural communities around diaspora kind of generations and, and ch children kind of coming up against those who live and breathe that heritage and culture. Um, so often when I'm thinking about myself as an artist or as a writer, I am very tentative when I position myself as Burmese because I've never been there and I, I want and I am planning on going there and planning to build relationships and planning to work there but I would never sort of speak on behalf of the Burmese community. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of complexity around diaspora and being of the diaspora and not wanting to speak on behalf of others, but at the same time, you want to champion social justice. You want to champion opportunity for your community. Um, but I think the best way to do that is by collaborating um, and being wary of, kind of creating your own platform for just yourself like you should be working with people in your community it sounds like all of those complexities especially if you're working with a multitude of people artistically would create a lot of internal conflicts that must be you know a hotbed of creativity that comes out through your works yeah definitely um i recently had an incredible opportunity working on a creative development uh with art center melbourne with some incredible artists um, Amrita Heppi, uh, Eugenia Lim, Liz Dunn, uh, Victoria Hunt, uh, and Alice, who's an incredible artist from Taiwan who was visiting. Um, and this was during uh, the Asia Topa Festival in February. Um, but it was a closed room sort of creative development, which is where we were just discussing ideas and we were talking about climate change, how it's affecting bird migration, the dissonance between older and younger generations. And we were all artists of kind of cultural uh, backgrounds and, and, and generational knowledge. And to be able to approach something like climate change, but with a perspective of acknowledging First Nations um, custodianship, um, trying to learn about their knowledge without capitalizing it, on it, trying to think about our own relationships. Like it was just such a rich, creative space because at the same time we're also acknowledging our own privilege um so yeah it does make for really interesting work when you've got um a mix of yeah mix of identities in the room and tapping into you know indigenous and first nations expertise in relation to the land must be our way out of the of the climate change problem that we have globally and we should listen to them more to what extent is that going to come out in your future works do you think oh that's yeah that's uh that's kind of hard to say at this moment in time i feel like i'm very aware that i don't have deep existing relationships with first nations artists but i have been aware of knowledge and being in the room, listen to conversations. And I think you have to start from a place of listening. Um, but again, being wary of taking up opportunity or speaking on top of others. And I do believe that 
there's a real need for more First Nations producers and First Nations leaders in the arts community. And they are the people who should be working with their community and with their artists. So for me, if, if I want to work with more First Nations artists, I sort of have to come from a place of, well, what is it that I can offer and how can I support you versus a First Nations producer or another First Nations artist? So I haven't really stepped into that space that much, but on more collaborative projects, definitely there's usually someone of that background who I'm working with. Because I think if you're talking about race, climate change, power, politics, you absolutely need to have someone of that background in the room. Um, because it, it just feels like such a such an ignorant way of, work, of of talking about climate change if you're not like respecting or acknowledging the hundreds of thousands of years of knowledge of that deep time. Um, and it was actually through working on that creative development with the Art Centre called Staging Sites, where we met with um, a First Nations tour guide called Dean Stewart, um, who walked us around the Art Centre Melbourne area and over the Yarra River. And I think it was, we only walked 100 metres, but it was like a two-hour tour. It was incredible. Um, and that really kind of made me realise how easy it is to, dis to disassociate from the land. So, yeah, uh, I'm keen to, I think that is going to reverberate throughout all of my projects from now on. But I guess because of COVID, um, I'm, un I'm un uh, unable to, I guess, work on the land uh, other than my own home which is interesting because I think since we're all inside, we're all in our homes, we've really had to reimagine our relationships to what is home and what do we need, what can we give to others, what can we give to ourselves. You're listening to 3CR Radio. You are indeed on 3CR in your face, in fact, with James, and we're chatting with queer arts producer Joshua Francis. You mentioned COVID, of course, it has not decimated artistic communities, but placed them under great strain. Tell us about your journey as an artist and as a producer during this pandemic. Yeah, sure. So I was really fortunate to receive uh, some Australia Council for the Arts uh, career development funding. So it was the first time I'd applied for myself as an individual um, and got the funding, which was going to take me to Japan, London, and New York, doing some residencies and some placements within organizations. So I was able to go to Japan for the Tokyo Performing Arts Market, which was incredible, but also surreal because COVID had started sort of spreading and, and was, just main, was just in mainland China. And then I was in Yoka, Yokohama when that ship was being held in quarantine in Yokohama and all these people from across Asia were gathering and it was a real concern about um, maintaining hygiene, but there was no lockdown or restrictions or it wasn't um, declared a pandemic yet. So it was really interesting being there in that time. And I was then returning back home to Melbourne before going off to London to work with the London International Theatre Festival. So I'd come back from Japan had a bit of downtime in Melbourne and then headed straight off to London. And basically I arrived in London and the global pandemic was declared, uh, which was a very stressful time because I wasn't sure whether I should have stayed in London. I was 
in, I was in London unsure of what I should do basically. And we were working on an international art festival. So we were bringing artists together from across the world. And I was preparing for artists to arrive from Kenya. And I sort of had this moment of these artists aren't going to come. They aren't going to arrive in London. They're surely going to cancel their travel. And sure enough, they did. And then the UK government uh, started to ask venues and bars and restaurants and cafes to shut down. And Australia was doing the same. And I had to make the decision to return home. So this, this opportunity in London was a huge momentous one for me. And it was about learning how international arts festivals work, understanding Australia, where we sit within that, and wanting to be a champion for some of the artists that I'm working with, but couldn't do any of that work and return home and was in quarantine for two weeks in my home, unable to see anyone. Um, so that was a real stressful crisis time. Um, and in those two weeks of quarantine, I applied for the Victorian Independent Producers Initiative, which I can talk a little bit more about, and that's the funding I've now received. So I'm very fortunate now to have employment and to have an income. So how I've been approaching COVID, I think like many artists is trying to research, uh, not focusing too much on being productive, but coming from a place of what are new relationships I could make, who are people I could give energy to that I already know, that I haven't maybe been giving as much attention to as I should and trying to come from a place of creating new ideas and new ways of working, but with people I'm already connected to, because I think using this time to deepen our current relationships is a useful, useful thing to do. Um, but I've also, as, as many others been doing is yes, yeah, still applying for grants and still applying for funding, navigating Centrelink um, and trying to support myself financially. Um, so, yeah, I really feel for a lot of artists at the moment um, because there's so much uncertainty and this isn't a temporary situation. I think the art sector is going to be in some trouble for quite a long time. And there were problems and issues happening before COVID, um, but because of this pandemic, a lot of those issues have now been exacerbated. And it's such a shame to see venues like Carriage Works uh, go into administration, although now philanthropists are supporting that venue. But I'm thinking about all of the small, tiny venues and unfunded organisations and unfunded artists who now have to find alternative employment um, or have to not work on their own practice until they can afford to again. Um, so, yeah, it's a real... I would say dark time for the arts community, but as always, we have to try and hold on to some optimism. And I think the only way to do that is by focusing on our relationships to others and to community and to ourselves, because that's the reason why I make work. It's, it's not for, um, I, I think there is a bit of ego, of course, like I enjoy being able to support other people's work and I get joy out of that. But yeah, I'm interested in making work for others and not for myself. Um, so maybe artists who have been doing something in a particular way could change. And I think this is an opportunity for change. Um, so yeah, so I hope that there's some optimism still taking place out there. And I look forward to meeting with many more artists um, in the future.
that return to Australia after the highs of London must have presented you with a, an incredible emotional journey and an emotional crash, if you like. What can you tell us about the emotion of that time in self-isolation? Yeah, sure. So I have an interesting relationship with London. So I was studying in Melbourne after moving here on my own when I was 19. And then I went back to Perth after graduating because I couldn't find work in Melbourne. So when I was back in Perth, I was thinking about, well, I've already lived over East. What can I do next? So I actually moved to London and lived in London from 2016 until September 2017. And that year and a half was really formative for me. It was probably one of the most difficult uh, periods of my life, moving to London on my own. Um, and I learned so much. I think I learned a sense of grit, a, a bit of an edge, uh, knowing how to say no, knowing um, how to look after myself, being able to learn who, like, who are people who can support me and who are people who drain my energy. But also I had a lot of financial instability. I was broke several times in London. So for me, being able to go back with Australia Council funding was huge. It was a real sense of reclaiming that experience and going back with, with contacts and friendships I'd made there, returning to them, um, working with such a, an organisation with a huge reputation, um, LIFT, the International Theatre Festival. So arriving there, there was a lot of, um, a lot of nervousness but a lot of excitement. And so when it all fell through and I had to make the decision to come back, I was really, really devastated, but also kind of not surprised. It's It sort of felt like maybe this just wasn't the right time. Um, and being inside where I live for two weeks in isolation, it, it didn't really, I had time to sort of grieve the experience a bit, but I sort of went straight into, okay, I need to figure out how I'm going to make a living now because I don't have an income and I'm, in, I'm unemployed. So I have to take care of myself. I have to find funding. I have to find some income. Then I have to support the people here. So I didn't really have time to kind of remain upset. It sort of spurred on this sense of, okay, it just makes sense. It makes sense for me to stay in Melbourne, be grounded. I feel Melbourne will always be home for me and this is where I'm planning um, seeds and sowing my roots, all of all of that. Um, so it's kind. Of, it was a blessing in disguise, um, but it's obviously it's such a horrible crisis. So, but it's strange. Yeah, it's strange how these sorts of moments happen. Of course, you discovered this week that you have got funding for eighteen months to set up your own arts collective or production company, uh, thanks to Creative Victoria and Theatre Works or the Theatre Network of Australia. What might we expect to emerge? Yeah, sure. So Theatre Network Australia are an incredible peak advocacy body for the performing arts. Um, and I definitely encourage artists and arts workers who aren't a member to definitely consider becoming a member. So Theatre Network Australia have been doing a lot of advocacy around arts funding, increasing the government budget, creating opportunities for artists. They, at the moment, they have a, a thousand by a thousand cash program for artists where artists can apply to receive a thousand dollar grants and they're still looking for donors so that's really exciting um, and Theatre Network Australia with Creative Victoria created this program 
to support independent producers, uh, as there's a real need for people with experience and skills who aren't connected to organisations, so they can kind of find opportunities, find the gaps, and they can solely work for artists and create those relationships. So yeah, they created this Victorian Independent Producers Initiative, uh, or VIPI, which sounds a bit more fun. Um, And basically, it's a program where emerging producers receive a part-time wage, and you apply for a certain period of time. So I was working on this application with Nilgen, who is an incredible producer. Uh, she works a lot with Raucous, which is a prestigious collective, an ensemble of performers with and without disability. And Nilgen and I both have a strong sense of social justice and interest in change within the art sector. So it was a real natural pairing for Nilgen to be a mentor for me. So we applied as a mentorship pair and I've now received this part-time wage and we agreed that 18 months would be a very beneficial amount of time for me considering everything happening with COVID. So having the 18 months to not rush into anything but to do a lot of research, to meet with a lot of artists, pay them for their time, meet with other mentors uh, or just experts to talk about specific things and pay them for their time Um, and basically trying to do all of this legwork and research development time so that by 2021 I hopefully will be in a position where I've got my own community or ensemble of artists I want to work with um, to create my own company and the reason I'm interested in doing that is because I was getting tired of sort of being a gig worker or working in the gig economy of sort of jumping from project to project, and there was no narrative in between. It was sort of doing a project for financial stability um, and creative interest and then having to move on to the next thing to sustain um, a career. But now that I have this funding, it means I can work on projects and work with artists over long periods of time, which I think is so crucial, especially because of this pandemic, Um, because a lot of artists are going to feel the pressure to take on a lot of work, move from project to project. And I want to kind of be that person who has a unique offering of where do you want to be in your career in five years' time or what opportunities do you want that you currently aren't receiving or do you want to work in a different arts, a different art form or a different context and be that person who is asking questions and not just stuck in delivery mode of, great, here's the budget, here's the venue, we've got the cast together. I kind of want to be someone who's much more creative and much more imaginative. Um, so my, my short answer is I don't know. I don't know where I will arrive by the end of the 18 months, but I do feel like I'm in a really good place with the funding, with industry support, with my mentor, Nilgen, to, yeah, create a huge amount of change for our local community, um, in Victoria and send some artists internationally in future with my international context. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a really thrilling time. It's, I, I never thought this would be an opportunity I'd receive. Uh, it's, this program is the first of its kind in Australia, if not the world. Producing is a very new sort of arts worker kind of form and uh, it's never had its own funding program. So 
Victoria is actually leading in this area, and we're really lucky to have the state government that's uh, providing more funding support for the arts. Joshua Francis, thank you so much for talking to me today on 3CR. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Uh, I always feel a bit uncomfortable talking about myself, but it's really nice to celebrate this success and bring others along for the ride with me. support of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities. A future without HIV and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more about them, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or find them on Facebook. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.